Hello, Diana, everybody. Great to see you. Our guest today is Jeff Bremer, who has written a rather extraordinary, well-researched book titled A New Iowa History of Iowa, which you know, it's a catchy title, Jeff, because one doesn't one doesn't think of history and new in the same in the same title. So I'm eager to hear about how you came up with that name. Welcome to the Julie Gamick Potluck Zoom Monday call. And with that, welcome. Um, tell us about the title first, and then we'll get into the meat of the book. Well, thank you for having me on, and thank everyone also for showing up. Uh, the book is called A New History of Iowa for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, it totally updates Iowa history, all the way up to the end of the pandemic in 2020. So it adds about 25 years of history to the last uh, state history. It is new because it adds new stories. Uh, it's new because it explores new sources. Uh, it is new because it also brings in and focuses on new themes, uh, themes that have become increasingly important uh, in the United States and Iowa the past few decades, uh, histories of immigration, um, race, the environment, economic inequality. Uh, and it's not, the, it's not the most original book title, but it gets the point across. There are other books. There's a new history of the South, a new history of Florida, a new history of India. So um, you look at it as, as an update that incorporates new information, new stories, and also fills in gaps. So you're not from Iowa originally, and <laughs> we we, uh, we got you to the state for a couple of different reasons. Talk to us about that. When did you move to Iowa? Well, I moved to Iowa in 2011, and I had the good fortune to be hired by Iowa State University for a couple of reasons. I was hired to run their history education program, and I trained social studies teachers. And second of all, I was hired to teach Iowa history. And having taught Iowa history for a few years, I realized that the most recent textbook could use some updating. Uh, and the more I looked into it, the more I realized there's a lot that could be done here. And so uh, I'm originally from California. I uh, grew up in Bakersfield, California. And I got to Iowa, and I had an Iowa connection. My scoutmaster that I grew up with, who uh, was my scoutmaster when I was a teenager, uh, he was from Fort Dodge. His name was Greg Olson. So I had always not even having been through Iowa, but once I always had a connection to the state and always loved Iowa because it had produced Greg Olson. All right. Well, so um, one of the reasons you and I have connected is because your wife is somebody I've met through the Okoboji Writers Retreat, and I'm very fond of her. How did she influence your approach to this study? Well, both my wife and I come from uh, relatively modest backgrounds. And she influenced the book because um, every time I talk with her about it, she would say, well, that's a good story. Think about this. And living with her helped me to keep in mind that there are plenty of histories of people that have not been written in to Iowa history. The history of uh, Iowa's women especially history of Iowa's native people, uh, the history of Iowa's African-Americans. So she reminded me uh, regularly that, you know, history is important for everybody and everybody needs to be part of it. And she simply, just by being, by me having the privilege of her in my life, reminded me that, um, um, you know, uh, of all the people that needed to be part uh, of the story. And this book especially incorporates Native people, uh, Latinos and Latinas. It focuses on women whenever possible. Um, so in, in ways that that you wouldn't know about other than uh, if you knew my wife. She, she's had a strong influence in the, the book. Well, let's talk about that, those aspects of your book that aren't covered in most Iowa history books. Let's let's talk about redlining. Let's talk about, um, I think of the 
the in Des Moines, the when the freeway went through, how disruptive that was for the black community. Talk to us about those kinds of things that we might not have read about in previous history books. Yeah, this is part of the reason that that I wrote this book is to make sure to to bring in all sorts of recent uh, topics and and recent research on this redlining uh, occurred in part thanks to a 1930s program, which judged the qualities of neighborhoods in urban areas across the United States. And those were graded from A to D, based upon, in large part, upon who lived there. Were you poor? Were you a person of color? Were you an immigrant? Were you from Asia? Were you Jewish? Were you Italian? And so the redlining gets its name because the the parts of cities that were judged as the worst, meaning they had the most uh, people that were in, uh, seen as not white and not wealthy. Remember, this is, this is the middle of the 20th century. They were outlined in red and graded with a D. The areas that were judged as better off because of the people that lived there were graded as an A or B. So you, the A or B got blue or green, and the C or D got yellow or red. And so redlining basically devastated uh, neighborhoods throughout the United States uh, because those that were redlined, uh, banks steered away. Money did not get invested. Public funds were not invested. Trees were not planted. Businesses left. Schools were not upgraded or built. So if you were in a redlined neighborhood, you were left behind for most of the 20th century, through no fault of your own, just because of the color of your skin, because of where you came from, because of your religion, the federal government decided you did not deserve equal opportunities. Redlining was officially outlawed with the Fair Housing Act of 1968, but it existed for 50 years. And it devastated poor and minority communities throughout the United States. And redlined uh, areas made up uh, a majority of minority areas in Des Moines. And you can see these maps. Uh, the Des Moines Register did a um, investigation of them, which I've included in the book. And the University of, of Richmond also has put these maps of these various neighborhoods online as well. So you could Google that, University of Richmond redlining maps. There's also footnoted in the book. But in that way, redlining hurt opportunities, hurt education, hurt employment opportunities, and hurt, of course, the chance for your home to gain value. So redlining just devastated uh, and, and, and increased inequality. Uh, so much damage was done because of redlining. So Jeff, this seems to me a perfect example of what some people don't want their children exposed to in school because it might make them feel guilty about being white. Is that your understanding that people are trying to erase part of our history because it's uncomfortable? Well, we have seen that in legislation that has cropped up across the country. Uh, and it, it is highly unfortunate that certain parts of American history will not be discussed. Uh, it is a tragedy because American history helps to explain how, to got, how we got here. It helps to explain why some people have had more opportunity. It helps to explain why some people have been left behind and why they were left behind, usually through no fault of their own. So a deep, broad, honest understanding of Iowa history or American history helps us understand who we are, helps us understand our neighbors, helps us understand why some people are better off and some aren't. And so I, I, I think that's why these stories of, of segregation or redlining uh, are important. Uh, and th- it's not just that those who got left behind have not fought for their rights. There are plenty of stories of those who have struggled for equality, whether you were volunteered to fight for the union in the Civil War, whether you fought for civil rights, whether you know you did whatever you could to take advantage of the GI Bill. Um, so it's just not a story of those who have been squashed by capitalism. 
uh, the story of the United States is the story of those who have also persevered and those who have triumphed against great adversity. And if, you, the, and if we consider ourselves to be an underdog nation, won the revolution, you know, beat the South in the Civil War, you know, if we consider ourselves to be special and different, then our, all of our history is special and different and worth knowing. Is it possible your book could be actually be banned in Iowa, Jeff? I, I certainly hope not. Uh, I, I do not think that would be the case. And, uh, but I would, I would argue that there is nothing in here that you're not going to find in other histories of the United States or, or other states. There might be things here that might make the occasional reader uncomfortable, but it's not that, you know, you did, no one alive today designed the redlining law. No one alive today brought about slavery. So the, some of the things we might not like to talk about are the things we do need to talk about because they help explain who we are and how we got here. I would hope that my, my book would not be banned. I don't, I can't imagine there's a reason for it. It is not the, it is 464 pages. It has 650 footnotes. It has a thousand sources. It is not written for elementary school. This is not the kind of book that would end up in K to 12 classes. Uh, now, Iowa's high school kids are smart, uh, and they're, they're, the state's literacy is good. So it is possible that bright high schoolers will pick it up. But there's nothing here that that you're going to get that's going to be surprising. Well, I'll tell you what, I've heard a number of publishers say that they wish that their authors would have their books banned because they know it would increase sales. But I don't wish that on you. I do. Well, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I don't wish it either. It's, you know, you uh, you, you want to do your job as best you can, and you don't want p politics to get in the way. And, and that, and go ahead. Okay, I, there's a lot about Iowa history and what's in the book I do want to talk to you about, but I also want to talk to you as a professor who works with students who are in in school to be teachers. What are, what are these students like these days? How, what keeps them on track with all of the stuff that's going on politically, uh, in, in homes, etc. It's a tough well, job. It is. Part of what I do here at Iowa State is that I train history and social studies teachers. So uh, most of my students stay in Iowa. Uh, the past few years, there has been a little more discussion among them, given some of the political controversies. Um, and that may drive some of our students out. During the pandemic year 2021, half of our graduates left the state almost half to go somewhere else. And they went to Oregon, Colorado, they went to Minnesota, they went to Wisconsin. Uh, you know, some go to Texas or Arizona. One of the things that is making them leave is the low salaries for teachers here. There is an economic push that operates on the students we produce. I have had my students who graduated last year and got a job in a rural district to the east of Ames, his starting salary was 37000 a year. And he borrowed plenty of money to go to college. My students are teachers because they love teaching. They are teachers because they want to do for their students what other people did for them. So they are highly motivated, and money is not the first calculation. But if you can't pay off your loans and you can't buy a new car, it's going to be hard to stay in places that don't pay you well. I've ha I have students that can go to Oregon or Washington, or they can go to Texas or Utah and make nearly 60000 a year because those places have more money for their students. Uh, so that is an, an economic incentive that will, that will pull our students away. So some of the greatest teachers I've ever seen who were great at everything they did in my class and got A's across the board, Phi Beta Kappa, those students uh, sometimes leave Iowa, which is a loss to the state because our students deserve the best possible teachers. So long answer. Uh, I'll let you give me a follow-up question if you'd like. Okay, I'm going to open it up to our 
participants here to ask questions. But uh, as we wait to see who's going to be raising their hand first, tell me the process you went through. I mean, as someone who suffered through history and writing a history paper would make my palms sweat with all the dates and all of the things I had to get accurate. Um, how did you how did you approach something like this? It's just fact after fact after fact. Well, fortunately, Iowans have left behind a huge amount of information. And the State Historical Society of Iowa has done a great job preserving this. Um, so that there, the book is chronological, but I did not start out the book chronologically. Usually, I took one or two topics a year. I started with World War II and the Great Depression, which I would know the most about, It'd be easy to do. And then from there, I built out the book chapter by chapter, moving both forward and backwards in time. Um, I, I dug deeply into the sources at the State Historical Society of Iowa. I wrote out a, an outline for the entire book, which took up many pages. And I went and I tried to find as much as I could to flesh out the story of Iowa. I also kept in mind um, some major themes, themes of immigration, uh, Iowa's minority community, themes of making sure to talk about rural and agricultural Iowa, but also not forgetting to talk about urban Iowa. I also looked whenever I could to tell the stories of uh, Latinos or women and stories that had been left out. So I read tons of first person sources uh, and I made sure whenever possible to tell the story of Iowa and relate it to the story of the United States. So if you didn't know a ton about Iowa, you would at least know what's going on in World War II to guide you and give you some background for Iowa's story. So the 50 chapters took uh, nine years of writing and research, and uh, they include more than 370 first-person accounts, many of which have never been used for a history like this before. Uh, so I was, I'm fortunate to be at Iowa State, which uh, provides uh, research support and some time uh, and some help with this. Um, but it was, it, it's, it was a long project aided by the enormous amount of information and, of course, by previous state histories, which also provided a framework. Okay, we have a first question. Josiah Warren, you are up first. Thanks, Julie. Jeff, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Go ahead, Josiah. Um, I have the, the the urban rural divide is a huge issue in my mind. I don't know if you had time to cover it in your book, but if you want to talk about that. Yes, yes. Uh, Iowa was a mostly rural state into the 1950s. And it's it became uh, an urban state where you had more people living in urban areas than rural areas beginning in the 1950s. And it was after World War II Iowa's rural areas really began to lose bleed population. Since with uh, increased technology and, and uh, fertilizers and such, you're able to produce much more with much fewer people. And so if you look at the rural-urban divide, uh, you can find plenty of information on that, especially the last three chapters of the book that talk about the challenges facing Iowa's small towns and rural areas, the, maybe the lack of hospitals, the closing down of, of businesses, maybe the loss of grocery stores and gasoline stores. So the process really goes, starts in the 1940s and 1950s, tremendously accelerates with the farm crisis. And it has slowed down uh, a bit here in the 21st century. But yeah, that rural-urban divide is, has been one which uh, is a, a major part of Iowa's story, especially the past 70 or 80 years. You have a follow-up? Sorry, forgot to take it off. Okay, did you cover anything about soil conservation? As long as I've got the uh, uh, Yes, yes, there is. Uh, Iowa's got a number of environmental challenges, whether it is uh, droughts we're going through now, whether it is increased flooding, whether it is water pollution. And uh, there, there are a few paragraphs, a couple paragraphs on the challenges of, uh, of the environment tied to erosion. You'll see those in chapter 14 and 15. Uh, there is more attention paid to the history and the story of environment uh, in this book, going back to the creation of Iowa's prairies and environment after the last ice age. Uh, so uh, not a lot dedicated to um, 
the the story of soil, but there is there is some at the early in the book, and also that would be uh, chapter 13, 14, 15 as well. Thanks. Well, I don't know if your time in Iowa included the years when Iowa boy Chuck Offenberger was writing for the Des Moines Register, but he's on the call, and I always ask. Oh. Yeah, I that, always that's ask intimidating. <laughs> he's not only been to all 99 counties, he's probably lived in them. So, Chuck, do you have a question for Jeff? A couple, and maybe, uh, Jeff, I appreciate you doing this new history. I, I think it's important, and I, I think it's timely. It's been a while since we've had a fresh history of Iowa, and a whole lot has happened in that time period. Um, and this, some of this may spring off of Josiah's uh, question to you. Um, the, the changes in Iowa agriculture since the uh, mid-1980s mid has been profound. Uh, and do you, how do you address that in the book? And uh, um, well, let's just start with that. Well, uh, Iowa's history is often a history of agriculture. And so agriculture and rural life are a dominant part of this book from the beginning. Uh, even going back to the, the, the Iowa and the Meskwaki and the Sauk. But if you're looking at since the 1980s, the farm crisis uh, is, is a key part of this book. And if you're looking at uh, how Iowa's environment has changed, there are a few paragraphs here and there which summarize what's going on in the 21st century or 20th century. Uh, essentially, to answer your question without rambling on too long, I would talk about the importance of technology, the importance of uh, also biotechnology and uh, the increased ability to plant without having to uh, worry uh, about weeds, increased use of fertilizer, and the lack of diversification in crops and how soybeans and corn have mostly taken over the landscape and how Iowa's once diversified farms have become much less diversified. Uh, Cornelia Mutel, uh, I quote a sentence of hers from her book, The Emerald Horizon, A History of Iowa's Nature. And she says, essentially, I, Iowa countryside uh, has become almost depopulated uh, because there are there and also that the, the the ways farms are run have changed. You don't have small family farms that have gardens or milk cows. They don't have a herd usually of cows. You have a much more industrial landscape where you have CAFOs, where you have basically factory production of animals, and you have production mostly of just two crops, corn and soybeans. That is due to uh, larger farms meeting, needing more capital investment. That is due to the depopulation of the countryside. Uh, these are topics that, that come up in, in a, a variety of places uh, in, the, in the chapters since World War II. Terrific. Can I have a follow-up? Okay. After all this study and all your years of teaching, as a matter of fact, who is, who's your choice for most significant Iowa person ever? And then who follow up to that? Who's the most significant Iowa person that the rest of us have never heard of? <laughs> oh, wow. That, that is a, that's a terrible question to ask. <laughs> it's a great uh, question. Ask me. Um, Okay, if, if you're going to have to make a choice of someone we don't know about, um, I would say, first of all, that would be Judith Ellen Foster. She was a suffragette, and she was at one point one of Iowans, one of Iowa's most prominent women. Uh, and she was also a temperance lecturer. And she was so good at what she did, her house was burned down in the 1870s. And so Judith Ellen Foster also was one of the first lawyers in Iowa. She lived over in Clinton. She is in the book in chapter nine. If you're looking for the most important person in Iowa history, uh, those highly influential people are often gonna be people who are politicians. Uh, if I had to make a guess, it would be Robert Ray or Harold Hughes because of their, their incredible importance for Iowa's politics in the late 20th century. So uh, now, having said that alone, uh, might might lead to a great deal of debate. But 
I, I took off from her and put me on the spot. I had to dive as I, I had to <laughs> come up with the Nice job. Okay. Yeah, very well. So I survived. So Robert Ray brought in a, um, an Asian community that has changed the state for so many reasons to the good. The current governor, current political climate is not welcoming of immigrants um, in that in that manner what what do you think the history of iowa will be 20 years from now if somebody's writing the jeff bremer new history well i actually hope to be to be someone who updates this book in 20 years maybe for the state's 200th anniversary uh but if i'm looking at this state uh to predict the future you look at the recent past uh i would say first of all the state's population will probably stay about the same as it is, about 3.2 million people. Now, we could use immigrants. Immigrants are good for economic growth. Immigrants provide additional producers, additional consumers. They bring in cultural diversity. You look at many of Iowa's small towns like Storm Lake. Those places have thrived with immigration. So I would think immigration would be crucial to the survival of our small towns. They're also crucial to places like Des Moines, who has become one of the locations in the Midwest and the United States that is uh, has more immigrants and refugees than other cities. So immigration, I think, is incredibly important. We should encourage it. I am concerned about the continual degradation of Iowa's environment. I am concerned uh, that um, those those two issues will hurt the state's growth will hurt its economic development, will hurt the state's ability to continue to continue to be a great place to live. I'm also worried that the state's uh, education system in 20 or 30 years might not be as good as it was uh, 100 years ago. Iowa, uh, around 1900, had the most literate population in the country. Iowa was number one in terms of the number of its kids that went to school. And... Uh, um, that was not because Iowa spent more money than elsewhere 100 years ago. That was because of Iowa's commitment to schools and teachers. So um, th those are some things I, I would be concerned about. Now, in terms of what is going well, um, Iowans work hard. Iowa's always had a very high labor participation rate. Um, Iowans' political participation rate, they vote highly. Uh, they vote regularly. Um, Iowa also has had better economic mobility in the late uh, 20th century and early 21st century than almost any other state. In large part, that was based on the quality of our schools. So Iowa ranked only behind Wyoming, according to one study in the late 80s and early, to, early 21st century, on economic mobility. The ability of someone from the bottom 20% of the state to rise to the top 20% of the state. Um, so there was a lot going for it. There are some challenges. Okay, Dwayne, you are the next in line for a question. It, yeah, you, you um, have really maybe already kind of answered my question, but let's see if I can slow it down a little bit. So um, I missed whatever your opening was, but I got, I got what you said about the um, relationship of uh, the redlining, the sort of economic opportunity to life in, in the history of Iowa. Uh, I, I want you to kind of go, go over this again carefully. Um, there's economic opportunity, but my sense uh, of the history of Iowa, you know, I was born in 1957, so don't, but uh, is educational opportunity was a, you know, maybe it's a kind of idealism, but nevertheless, uh, my my, the little bit that I've gone around in the world, it's like I I just think we were taught different ideas that were more expansive and offered more equality of opportunity in terms of uh, what life means. So like you know from a rural area you can still be a leader. You you know about life. Uh, you compare differently to people who are just uh, urban or upper middle class, you know, I mean, everybody's smart, but I mean, I, I'm just, is there a connection between 
land, public education, and life opportunity, uh, this kind of mobility maybe you're talking about. And when you don't have the land populated, you don't have these little ways of learning a democratic way of life, whether it's a organization or township government or, and if the future is urban, I'm just, I don't think just the fact that it's urban uh, precludes this kind of uh, opportunity that I'm talking about, but it's, it, it does seem to shape, <clears throat> did I slow that down? <laughs> it's not just land and economic opportunity, but it's people in the land and public education opportunity that goes for equality and leadership and a sort of a, a progressive view of life and its meaning. Okay. Oh, yes, uh, yes, no, maybe. So, uh, <clears throat> so you, you are looking back at the at rural Iowa, possibly early mid 21st century at one room schools and small farms. And the fact people were, were tied to small farms in their communities. And, and that is having been a way that encouraged uh, maybe broader horizons or, 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 uh, or, or participation in church or, or, or one room schools or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that Iowa and much of the Midwest has changed tremendously in the past 60, 80, hundred years, um, Iowa still ranks well in terms uh, of how you would judge its citizenship. Uh, it ranks very well in general terms. I don't have this offhand in terms of voting, in terms of, are you a member of a church? Uh, do you contribute to charity? Uh, are you involved with the PTA? Those kind of things. So uh, Iowa and many of the Midwestern states still rank highly on those kind of things that we might think existed more 60, 80, 100 years ago because of, of rural communities and, and small towns. I mean, uh, Storm Lake, I, have, I subscribe to his paper, and there are all, always something going on in this community i mean everyone goes to the plays everyone goes to uh, the basketball games uh so you can be a 21st century community in a small town and still t be tightly tied to your neighbors and your friends it is often harder in an urban world and it's especially harder given social media and polarization and how it seems that we have been divided the past 10 years or so so uh, I, I think I'm sort of getting at your question. So feel free to ask a follow-up if I did not do a good job. Well, no, I, I, you slowed it down. So that the thought would then be, is it possible for renewal based on that kind of ground uh, instead of just a future that like we've lost it, we, we, we're shifted and we can't really operate in, in those channels that you described? <clears throat> well, human history provides us many examples of renewal and rebirth and the ability to turn around once you've realized what is going wrong, if you can mobilize a majority to deal with your problems, then you can deal with those problems. Think of the civil rights movement. Think of gay rights. Think of women's rights. Think of, uh, of what, the, of, of the troublemakers of the past who convinced us to, to pull ourselves forward and to deal with our challenges. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Diana, you're up next. Uh, I wanna go back to CAFOS a little bit. Um, I've been trying to inform myself as best I can to write about the farm bill. Um, and I'm one of my questions is, where does the CAFO CAFO money go? Does that all go out of the state? I mean, who who makes the money on that? And it 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 is, you know, doing so much damage to our water uh, that. <laughs> and uh, you know what I'm learning from Chris Jones is it's going to take the public demanding that that not happen. So could you talk a little bit more about CAFOs, what it's doing to the state of Iowa, and how we're going to renew or recover ourselves from that? 
Well, uh, you mentioned Chris Jones and his book, Swine Republic, which I have on the shelf back, back behind me. I have not finished it. I am no expert on CAFOs. This would be a question probably for someone in the ag department. Uh, but to give you a, a brief sort of general an answer, uh, a CAFO is a confined animal feeding operation. And the thousands of animals, usually pigs, uh, might end up and live in something like that and leave enormous amounts of manure behind. And this, this, that is the problem. Is you have the, the, that manure, which can be concentrated, which sometimes ends up in our water and gives us very high nitrates, which is nitrates are poison for, for water. It, well, in, in large amounts. It, they're not something you want to drink. Um, but... Again, this is probably a good question for, for uh, Chris Jones. Um, but individuals often build a CAFO facility. They, uh, they uh, sometimes take out large loans, and then they end up selling that to a, um, a meatpacking plant or a producer. So um, it, the answer depends. Depends on if it may be an individual or a family owns a CAFO or if maybe uh, it is a, uh, a larger operation that is owned by a company or corporation. Many families and individuals are contracted and they provide uh, whatever their production is to uh, a certain meatpacking plant. And they can be stuck um, with large costs over a long period of time and they can sometimes not make a lot of money. That is not the best answer, uh, but that is a, a summary. And since I'm not Chris Jones, that's probably not a great summary. Uh, so I, I would I would say uh, I would say that a historian it might not be the best person to talk to uh, about this most contemporary of, of of topics. So sorry I, I sorry. I can't give you a great answer there. Maybe someone else here knows um, more about the economic side of CAFOs. Well, I'll tell you what, we, we have you as the guest to talk about history, which I think is, there's so much you know that I don't know, and I suspect mo most on the call don't know, that I'd love after we have Barbara ask her question for you to talk about what Iowa was like when it was uh, the natives were were here and and uh, settlers hadn't come because I'd like to know what your what your take is on that. But Barbara, you have a question. Yes, thank you. Um, I wonder if you could uh, talk about how you covered a big, uh, fairly recent social change issue uh, back in '09 uh, when Iowa became the third state to legalize gay marriage, um, and looking at that recent history is particularly important with what's going on with attacks on our trans uh, brothers and sisters. So if you could address that briefly, that'd be great. Thanks. Yeah, yes, you, you make, you ask a question about the Varnum versus O'Brien, Varnum versus Bryan case, which in 2009, the Iowa Supreme Court in a unanimous ruling decided to give uh, the LGBTQ population the ability to marry, just like the rest of us. You're looking at marriage equality. And uh, I was not in Iowa at that time. I, I lived down in Texas, and it got a quite a, a lot of national attention. And uh, um, it was a huge step forward for uh, uh, equality for those who had not been given marriage equality. And Iowa was the third state. Many states followed the Supreme Court, of course, uh, then legalized it in 2015. Unfortunately, the story only gets a paragraph in the book, but it gets a paragraph that helps put it in, in our political context. There was a great deal of political blowback to that court case ruling. Three members of that course of that court lost their reelection fight. It helped to mobilize opposition and that the 2009 court nine court case, as well as the Great Recession, and other economic problems uh, helped lead to um, Governor Terry Branstad winning in 2010 and coming back into power. Um, so this, the court case is tied into the larger political change 
in, in Iowa's history, which moved us from being a more competitive purple state, battleground state, to one that is solidly red. Uh, and, and yes, you make an excellent point about uh, national legislation that uh, has targeted those who, can, who are LGBTQ and also targeted books and also targeted the teaching of history for those that are uh, uh, people of color. So yeah, that the 2009 case uh, helped lead to a Republican resurgence here and helped get us to uh, where we are at. So both you can have history progress forward and then there is a reaction to that as well. Thank you. By the way, there's quite an interesting chat going on here. I don't know if you can see it too, too uh, Jeff, but glance at that one uh, in a minute. But I do want you to talk about native Iowa before Europeans came and, and took over the land. What, what was it like? Well, the, there were native people here in Iowa for thousands and thousands and thousands of years before any white person rec was recorded to have stepped in the state. And uh, the ancestors of the Iowa were probably here for thousands of years. The uh, Iowa lived over on the Missouri River uh, in the 1700s and then moved over to live in uh, eastern Iowa. Uh, the Sauk and the Meskwaki moved into Iowa from around the Great Lakes. They were pushed out by a genocidal French war against the Meskwaki, and they moved west because of pressure from European settlements, and they lived on the Mississippi River. There was probably only a few thousand uh, native people, probably less than 10,000 uh, from those three tribes in the early 19th century when the first Americans and Europeans would have made their way uh, and begun to settle in, uh, in Iowa, especially the 1820s and 1830s. Uh, those tribes hunted across the Midwest. The three tribes had mostly gone along in the 1700s. Eventually, as they competed for hunting territory and as they competed uh, to have access to uh, the markets to trade with uh, Americans and British and the French, those three tribes then competed against each other. The Iowa were pushed out, moved into Missouri, moved into northwest Missouri, and then were eventually were forced over into Kansas, Nebraska area. The uh, Sauk and the Meskwaki were pushed out, forced out, forced to give up all their lands uh, and all their claims in Iowa in the 1830s and 1840s after uh, their defeat in the Black Hawk War of 1832. Tim Wagner, you need to unmute. I understand you saw Jeff at Beaverdale Books and you're halfway through the, the book he's written. Do you have a question or a comment? Love to see you on the call today. Uh, oh, you, you just, I just lost your audio. Wow. Not good. Try again. Right. There you uh, go. Yep. Yeah, I don't think that was me who saw Jeff. It must have been someone else, Julie, but um, I do have a question. Um, Jeff, getting back to the, uh, the topic of uh, Native Americans who lived here. Uh, I, I live up in Decorah, and I've read some history, not a lot, about um, the Native tribes who lived in this region of the state, uh, you know, many, many years ago. And as you know, Decorah has a very rich history in uh, Norwegian settlement. Um, and of course, we have a great his historical cultural museum with Vesterheim here in Decorah that celebrates the settling of the Norwegian immigrants and so forth. Uh, there isn't a lot of emphasis on uh, Native American tribes that I've seen. Um, they probably will be doing something at some point, I hope, more on that regard. But I guess I just was asking your perspective, what you know about that region or, or this region and the potential conflicts that arose between Native Americans lived here and when Norwegians came in. Well, the uh, the Ho-Chunk, popularly known as the Winnebago, 
would have lived in uh, Wisconsin and also hunted in northeast Iowa. They also were forced into Iowa for a brief period of time after the Blackhawk War. The Dakota, related to the overall tribe that we know as the Sioux, had lived in Minnesota for hundreds and hundreds of years, and their ancestors probably went back thousands of years. So there is going to be, uh, a, uh, of course, a long-term permanent Native American presence there. But because around Decorah, you didn't have the, uh, the Meskwaki or the Sauk have settlements like you might have had along the Mississippi River, that area may not, the Native presence may not have been so obvious, yeah. which might explain why it is, is not deeply rooted in, in the, the history of that region. But they were there for thousands of years. They would have hunted. They would have traversed that territory. They would have known. They would have loved that area. And they would have known it intimately, regardless, uh, regardless of, of, of which tribe you were from. Um, there, there was, uh, along the Mississippi River up by Dubuque, um, there had been at, at least several Dakota settlements in the 1810s, 1820s. Uh, and I think they were, were forced out when large numbers of miners came across the Mississippi River. Okay, thank you. Tisha Carter-Smith, you'll need to unmute if you have a question. Love to have you on the call. Welcome, welcome. Thank you very much. I am African-American and my family history goes back in the state uh, to about 1911. And I do know around that time there was uh, land grants that were given, but my family did not receive. So I've always been curious to know um, what opportunities were denied to African-Americans during the early 20th century. Can you speak on that, please? Well, if you're talking about land grants, you might be thinking about the Homestead Act, the Homestead Act of 1862, which granted land to those who lived on it for uh, yeah. at least at least five years. The Homestead Act actually was in existence up to the 1930s. Uh, and if your family uh, lived in Iowa, it was possible that they were denied to write to Homestead simply because of their race. Uh, most of, of Iowa's Homestead claims happened in Northwest Iowa and Western Iowa. Since by the time the Homestead Act uh, had be, been passed, uh, most of Iowa uh, in the central and eastern part of the state had been settled. Um, I, I think that might get to your, your, your question. Feel free to give me a follow-up. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Tisha. Thank you. Tim, your hand is still up. Do you have another question? Okay, great. So, Jeff, what surprises most people about Iowa history from your perspective when, when you're with a group of non-historians and somebody's making polite conversation at a dinner party and you tell them that you're working on a book about the history of Iowa? What surprises them? What surprises them is that Iowa is traditionally been so religiously diverse. Uh, Iowa was one of the most diverse uh, places in the Midwest in terms of religion in the 19th century. It's still pretty diverse today, not as diverse as some of the urban areas we might ha might have you know, people from all over the world squeezed together in, in a block. But Iowa, uh, if, uh, Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Muslims, uh, Quakers, the Amish, the Amana colonies, uh, uh, Iowa had a, a very diverse religious history uh, uh, once Europeans and, and Americans got here. Uh, another thing is that Iowa, um, you know, and I, I don't know if it's Ray Gunn has a shirt that says, uh, yes, there are black people in Iowa, but Iowa is a bit more racially diverse than you might think. The, the first um, Iowans who were African-Americans, were here in the 1830s. Some were brought enslaved. Some were free and came here. Some, of course, escaped and, and, and became free. Um, in the 1860s, Iowa had a regiment of African-American soldiers that fought for the Union. 
And there were more than a thousand of them. Most black men in the state volunteered to fight, as well as many men who had uh, escaped from enslavement. Of those thousand plus men in Iowa's Civil War black regiment, more than 300 died in the war. Uh, another thing, no one realizes how badly hit Iowa was by the Great Depression. I mean, Iowa's uh, banking sector basically collapsed. Iowa's farm sector basically collapsed. And other than the Dakotas, Iowa got more money per capita from the New Deal than any other state in the Midwest. So it was badly, badly hit in a way that we don't think of. In fact, the economic recession had come in the 1920s. So Iowa actually had two decades uh, of economic downturn. Okay, we have questions in the chat. And if you wanna ask them uh, online, you're welcome to. Barry Pyatt, if you'd like to go off mic, otherwise I'll just tell what your question is. <laughs> I you can go ahead and do it. Go ahead. Well, go ahead. You're off. You're off mic now. Go ahead. All right. All right. Well, I basically have two questions. Uh, number one, from a historic standpoint, uh, what was the significance of the federal farm policies in the 1980s uh, and their with their impact on the depopulation of uh, rural Iowa? And then my second question was, who was, in your view, Iowa's worst governor, our James Buchanan, so to speak? Okay. Uh on your first question, in terms of farm policy from the 1980s, um, when the pandemic hit uh, and, and with the um, issues with, with uh, loss of a, a Chinese market thanks to tariffs, the federal government threw a heck of a lot more money to support farmers than they ever did during the worst of the farm crisis. Uh, so the thing about the farm crisis is in, when it hit and in the mid-80s, the federal government under the Reagan administration did not provide uh, uh, as much support at all as the farm sector needed. Uh, that got a little better in the late 80s and 90s when there was uh, some money to take land out of production and there were some federal price supports. So in the worst of it, the federal government did not do enough at all. And things got a little better in the 80s and 90s to, to summarize. And in terms of Iowa's worst governor, oh, good God. Uh, what I know about are Iowa's better governors. What <laughs> I don't know about, because I ignore them, are Iowa's worst governors. Uh, I can't tell you that one of Iowa's first governors uh, was a guy named Chambers, who's second governor, uh, whose name I, whose first name I forget. I can tell you that he was personally corrupt because he brought enslaved people with him to Iowa, which was a free state at the time. So he enslaved a man and a woman as territorial governor. Uh, they eventually uh, escaped and claimed their freedom. So why I can't talk about Iowa's other governors because I've ignored the, most of the bad ones, I can tell you that Chambers personally qualified as one uh, who, you know, as noted in the book, ha has personally shameful behavior. Thank you. Right. Thanks. Tim Grover, I see you went off uh, mute. Did you have a comment or a question? Yeah, um, I did see um, him at Jeff at Beaverdale Books and great presentation. Also, look up his interview on IPR with Charity Nebby. A quick question. I read once, I think, that Jefferson Davis built a sawmill on the Yellow River. Do you know anything about that? Uh, Jefferson Davis was a uh, member of the American military in the 1830s. He helped chase early settlers out of Iowa who came before the, the, the territory was officially open to settlement. I don't know the sawmill story, but it does not surprise me. Uh, at all. But yeah, Jefferson Davis was here. Lincoln uh, was mobilized during the Black Hawk War, although he never fought. So if you want to look at the two American, well, one was a patriot, the other was a traitor. But if you want to look at uh, Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln, both those men were, were here uh, along the Mississippi and in or near Iowa in the 1830s. 
And Lincoln actually owned some land in um, Tama County, too, I think, right? Yeah, I believe he was granted some land. Might be tied to railroad development. Yeah. Hey, great book, by the way. I'm about halfway through it. So highly, highly oh. recommended, guys. Thank you. Thank you Thanks. so much, Tim. All right, Josiah, you had another question? Right. I think Mr. Pyatt's question about the, the 1980s farm policy might have been leading up to did that lead to a lot more consolidation of our farming practices? I, I don't know uh, if your book covers that or not. Well, I don't know how much the farm policy contributed, but I know the farm crisis uh, helped cut the number of Iowa farms by almost by at least 20 percent. Um, my colleague Pamela Riney Kerbrick did the best book on the Iowa farm crisis or the best book on uh, the farm crisis uh, in the country. And she talked about how between 78 and 92, Iowa lost more than 20,000 farms. Those were farms that were lost because they were not economically sustainable. And some of those may have been lost because of farm policy, not supporting family farms. Um, but I, the farm crisis did most of those in. And most of those uh, family farms, their land was bought up by other family farms here in Iowa. So you went from 100,000 or so, maybe 120 to about 90,000. Those numbers are a little rough. Uh, I think I have something mentioned at the end of my chapter on the farm crisis that gives you the exact information. But yeah, uh, uh, the farm crisis contributed because the government did not do enough help farmers. One follow-up, Julie. Sure. Your students who go out and teach in Iowa's high schools, do you hear back from them? Are they are they seeing kids who actually want to learn history or is it is are the are the high school students losing interest in history? Um, I don't know so much about that. I, I can tell you that it's probably not the fault of the students as it is the fault of a, a, a political climate that mm -hmm. discourages mm -hmm. the discussion of topics that might be important for all of us to know. If you think about Des Moines, uh, a, a significant portion, maybe even, even getting close to a majority of the Des Moines school district students are students of color. Um, so if, if you want to tell a history which is useful for everyone, you need to tell the story of how some people were not given equal opportunity or those who were left out. So uh, I, it's not the fault of the students. Uh, students are inquisitive. They want to learn. It, it is the fault of a, 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 a system which may not encourage them to fully explore every topic. We only have a couple of minutes, but Lowell Norlin, you had a question that I thought was interesting. Would you care to articulate it? Oh, you're, I'm Lowell, you need to unmute. Or I can't hear you if you're talking. Lowell's question was, uh, he'd like to know what your thinking is as to the effect from religion and the origin of the settlers on political views now. Example, Dubuque used to be a Democratic stronghold. Northwest Iowa was always Republican. And Lowell says, my little county of Worth was divided too, like Iowa. Some townships were known for their political views too. Did you have a chance to observe what he's talking about? I, I can talk to recent history. And okay. uh, I cannot talk specifically about specific denominations and, and their politics. I would be generalizing and I would be making mistakes. Uh, but if you're looking at uh, a state political competitiveness today, the more urban areas, the more cities the state has, usually the, it's going to lean a bit democratic. The more rural areas in general and small towns are going to lean more democratic. If you also have more college graduates, it's going to lean more democratic. Uh, so what's happened in Iowa in the past 10 years is also happened in places like Missouri and places like Ohio. Uh, places that are increasingly conservative have fewer college graduates, 
they often are have more rural residents and they uh, often have um, cities that aren't as dominant as they w once were or they have suburban areas which are highly competitive between the two parties so in terms of recent politics that that's the best very brief summary i can give you thank you so much jeff this has been a fascinating conversation and yes i will put a link to charity nebbia's conversation with you when i do the summary it was fabulous she of course is terrific and uh and also John Busby with with uh, oh what's the name of it culture 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 bus I'll put a link to that too thank you very much and what we do now Jeff and you're welcome to hang around but I think you have a class to attend yeah I've got to run and teach all right but those of you who remain we're going to go into breakout rooms for a few minutes Jeff thank you again good luck with the book thank you so much if anyone has any questions you can always find me at Iowa State. Thank you for your time. I got to run across campus. Thanks, Take Julie. Thank, Thank you, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here we go. In the breakout rooms.